This time we're going to have a look at Luke chapter 12 and the parable about the, uh, the man who has a great harvest and he decides to pull down his barns and build bigger ones. And we'll just, uh, I'll just read that to you, Luke 12 from verse 16. Jesus spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he reasoned within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my corn and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said unto him, you fool, this night your soul shall be required of you. The Greek, uh, you got this on the RV margin, this night they require thy soul of thee. And the things which you have prepared, whose shall they be? So is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, what's the context? here. Well, the Lord Jesus has been been talking in the first let's say 12 verses or so about his coming and the the day of judgment and how there's no point in being hypocritical because the day of judgment will will, uh, reveal everything and he says in verse 8 that there will come a time when we shall be confessed before the angels of God and if we deny him in the presence of men we'll be denied in the day of judgment in the presence of the angels of God. So he's talking about pretty high things, about the reality of judgment and how we will appear before God and before the angels. And then verse 13, there's something that's sort of right out of context with what he said. Some guy, one of the multitudes, said to him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. Now, there's a sort of a juxtaposition here of opposing ideas. There's Jesus talking on one level, and this guy comes out with something completely irrelevant. It's, it sort of reminds me in a funny way of how when the Lord Jesus died, this climactic event, the Son of God dying for us, covered in, in blood and spittle upon the cross, the Son of God put to a, a naked and an open shame, and within, what, one metre of the dying Son of God... There's these soldiers who are sitting there with, with, a, with dice and saying, now nah, who's going to have his coat? And who's going to have his sandals? No, I should have the sandals. No, I should have them. And they, they start gambling for who's going to have his, uh, his, his garment. There's sort of petty materialism right within one metre of the, the dying son of God. And it sort of reminds me in essence of what's going on here that there's Jesus talking about his coming, how this life has got to be lived in, in, in awareness of the fact that we will come to the day of judgment and then this, this guy says, uh, oh please talk to my brother, he, he's not giving me a fair share in the, in the property and Jesus as he very often does answers the, the question in a, a very profound sort of, sort of way by refocusing the, the whole issue. And his answer is uh, in the parable that, that we've just read. But remember that it's in the context of him having been preaching about how we will stand before the angels of God and how we will give an account. And then this guy comes in with this, interjects as it were, with this thing about some petty material issue that he's got, uh, and Jesus tells this parable to sort of bring him back to, to focus. 
Verse 17, you could do what I've done in my Bible and put a circle around all the, the personal sort of pronouns. What shall I do? Because I have nowhere to bestow my fruits. This will I do. I will pull down my barns. There I will put all my corn, my goods. I will say to my soul, that is the guy talking to himself, soul, you have much goods laid up. Take your ease. And so Jesus comments, this is the man, verse 21, who lays up treasure for himself. This person is totally self-centred. And that's the problem with the materialistic age in which we live, that materialism leads people to be absolutely selfish and self-centred and and self-possessed. There's no mention here of him having a family. Most people in, in those days, certainly if they were wealthy, had some kind of family. But this person doesn't even think about that. And when you look at the biblical precedent of somebody who had a huge harvest... An unusually huge harvest. I mean, this guy thinks he's going to have such a huge harvest that one year that it's going to be enough to keep him going fine for what he calls many years. Now, he may be exaggerating in his own mind about how good this harvest is going to be, but all the same, this is an an amazingly unusual harvest. And I have said before that the parables nearly all have an element of unreality in them. And that element of unreality is often a flag or a signpost to the actual essence of of the meaning. So then, he's got this huge harvest whereby one good season is going to be enough to keep him going for many years. So, what's the Old Testament parallel for that? Well, the one, I I suppose, that comes to mind is Joseph, when he's running things in Egypt. They had these huge harvests. And what did Joseph do? Yes, he put it all in barns, but why? So that he could share it with others. And actually, in a, in a sort of village society like these people were living in in the first century Palestine, the implication could really have been, well, you got a super harvest, you should share that bit by bit with, the, with your labourers, with the, the, with the village. But this person doesn't think like that. And in fact, there is another element of unreality in all this. He says in verse, well, we're told in verse 16, that the ground brings forth plentifully. But the harvest is not quite gathered. And I, I think the aorist tense there in 16 could possibly imply that he has this thought just immediately before beginning to harvest. And then he says, well, I will pull down my barns. This is crazy. It's harvest, absolutely everything has got to be concentrated on getting that harvest in. Why pull down your barns and build greater? Well, you could say that he was uh, trying to maximise his uh, usage of of land, and so he uh, didn't want to just build another one, he wanted to pull down what he had and build a a bigger one, uh, maybe a higher one, a taller one. But all the same, there seems, it seems largely in his own mind that he's fantasising about how big this harvest is going to be and he comes up with this crazy scheme that in the time of harvest, when all energy has got to be out there in the field, he's going to pull down his existing barns and build bigger ones. 
so that he's got somewhere to put all these, this corn and goods that he imagines he's going to get. You see, he says in 18, I need to build bigger barns so that I can put there all my corn and my goods. So his mind has raced ahead a bit to how he's going to sell some of his harvest and buy lots of goods, and he needs to put them somewhere. So I would say that a lot of this is in the guy's mind. And he says, verse 19, Saul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry right now. But actually, he's running ahead of himself. And this is the trouble with thinking about wealth. What am I going to do with that money, with that house, with that car, with that possession, or whatever? And this is absolutely a a unique insight into human psychology when it comes to to fantasizing about money. And we need to ask ourselves, we need to really, really take a grip on ourselves on on this point, uh, and ask ourselves, do we think or fantasize about what we might do if we had a better material situation. This is, I think, particularly a, a, a temptation for the very rich and for the very poor. So many times when we have prayer requests uh, at our meeting here, people come up with uh, these kind of uh, requests for some material uh, sort of advantage that they, they wish to get so that, as they imagine, they can therefore serve God better, give me better health, more money, better place to live, uh, take away my noisy neighbours, etc., etc. But the focus that Jesus is uh, bringing before us all the time is that the soul, the essential person, the personality, is more important than any of these material things. That is what will be required, they will require it, of us. So then, we might think that, well, I'm very poor, I don't have this, that, or the other, I have nothing. nothing. But you do have the most important thing, and that is you. Your personality, your character, your soul, the essence of you. And that is what's so important. Now, very often in the parables of Jesus, they appear to give one lesson on the surface, but then there's a a sort of a spike in the tail at the end. And I think that the the people who heard Jesus, who would have been poor, uh, maybe agricultural kind of labourers, would have uh, heard this parable and thought, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's a trouble with rich people, typical, yeah, good on you, Jesus, absolutely, knock the rich. But really there's a a trick of the tale right at the end when Jesus is really saying all that is a load of nonsense. The essence is you and yourself. And to lay up treasure toward God. You can be rich, you are rich toward God. That is the essence. So then... Verse uh, 18, he talks about gathering into his, his barns. He's going to bestow or gather all his corn into his, into his uh, garner or his barns. And oddly enough, that phrase, that Greek phrase, occurs three times. 
in the, in the Gospels, Luke 3.17, Matthew 3.12, Matthew 13, verse 30, about how when Jesus comes back, he's going to gather his corn, that is, his people, into his barns. Now, that connection cannot be chance or random. It's a whole phrase in the Greek that is repeated. And I think the implication, surely, is, no, you should have been more concerned about gathering people into God's kingdom than gathering your own wealth into your own barns. So then, the wealth that the man could have had and his richness towards God was in gathering people for God's kingdom. And so many times, both rich and poor brothers and sisters have the idea that, well, I'm going to concentrate on my business, on my education, on my career. I'm going to pray and pray and pray that I might be able to get a, a nice big house, for example, so that I can serve the Lord with that house, so that I can do this for God, so that I can do that. And it's all the idea is, well, I'm going to do this now, so that then I can do something for God. And the whole idea of the teaching of Jesus is not that at all. It is that we can serve him immediately right now. <clears throat> in fact, if you look at the, the word immediately, even in the uh, English, uh, English Bible or Sarazu in, uh, in Russian, uh, let alone if you look up the original Greek word and see how often it's used, you see particularly in the Gospel of Mark, but actually all through the teaching of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels, the emphasis is on immediacy. Serving God right now as we are. And the real riches are gathering, gathering people into God's kingdom. That is the real wealth. Now, that can be through preaching the gospel. It can be through strengthening those that have been converted. If we feel that we're not a, a frontline preacher, as it were, that's fine. You can still get out there and, in a ministry of encouragement, gather people into God's kingdom. It's rather like, as we said, the, the parallel with Joseph. Yeah, he had a big harvest, but what did he do with it? <clears throat> well, he used it for, to, to give to the hungry people. And uh, th this theme, really, is, is continued through the rest of the chapter, really. Um, in verse 31, Seek first, or seek ye, his kingdom, the things of, of God's kingdom. And all these other things shall be added unto you. So then we should be seeking above all God's, the things of God's kingdom and the things of, of his people. Gathering people for his kingdom into his kingdom. Now this uh, man is told that or in the parable it says that they will require your soul of you. Verse 20. Who is the they? Well I said that the context is Jesus talking about how we will come in the day of judgment before the presence of the angels of God in verse 9, verse 8. So then the angels are active in our lives. And we have, it seems to me, guardian angels. They see everything that we do, everything we think, 24-7.
And when Jesus comes to judge us and bring us to his kingdom, he will not come alone. He says that he will come with the angels and he will send out his angels to gather us into his kingdom. So then the, the, uh, the process, the experience of judgment will involve the presence of, of the angels. And of course that's quite appropriate because they will have seen our lives and they will be there with us because in some form, and we, we can't maybe imagine quite how it will be, but there will be a reliving of our entire human experience and a, a giving account. <clears throat> our life will be required of us, our life, not our wealth, not what we did uh, physically, uh, as it's worded in terms of uh, creating wealth or gathering things. We will answer for ourselves, and in that wonderful day, we will perceive the, the colossal importance of personality, of who a person is. That is what is absolutely fundamental. Your soul, your your being. Your body, as it were, your character, who you essentially are, that's what you have, that is your wealth, and that is what you've got to use. So, when we read that the man's soul would be required of him that night, that is, at death, well, how do we square that with the fact that the soul will be, or our lives, an account of our lives will be required of us, at the day of judgment. <clears throat> well, I think it's quite simple that when we die, the next waking moment is the day of judgment. And so, as we get older, we are inching towards, or running towards, in one sense, the day of judgment. We're getting closer and closer. We tend to think, well, Jesus is going to come at some point in time. We hope it's in our lifetime, but it may not be. At some point in time, he will come, and I'll be resurrected and given account. Okay, but de facto... His coming for us is our death, because the next moment we know it's going to be day of judgment. So then, <clears throat> we are getting closer and closer. And, you know, if God said, well, you know, Duncan, in, uh, in six months and two days' time, judgment will start for you. You're like, wow, I better get ready. Yeah, who, who am I? What? Yeah, etc. And that is what God has said. That is the truth for each of us, that we are getting closer and closer to the day of judgment. It's like Jesus said that we're, we're like someone who's going to court, but while they're walking the court, as it happens, their adversary uh, happens to be walking the same road, and you and the, the other guy, you're walking along the same road to judgment, to, to, the, to the court. So he says, well, you better make peace with the guy while you're walking together on the road. What that means is that, in one sense, our Christian walk is a walk towards the day of judgment. You're baptised and you're given a journey to walk, a path to walk, and the end of that is judgment. Now, we shouldn't see this negatively, because, you know, judgment and all the language of judgment is, to some degree, a metaphor. Of course, there will be a judgment. I don't say there will not be, but um, yeah, it's only one way to look at uh, life and life in Christ. The essence, of course, is that God loves us, and Jesus loves us, and he can't wait to come back and, as it were, be married to us. So, you know, bear that in mind uh, as well. But we're talking here, in this context, about our answerability and accountability to God. And this word required, your soul will be required of you. The only other time the word occurs is also in Luke, in Luke 6, 
verse 30. We just have a look there. Uh, Luke 6 verse 30. Give to everyone that asks of you, and of him that takes away your goods, ask them not again. It's that ask them not again. That is the same word translated require. Your soul will be required, will be asked again of you. And I think the connection of thought is that insofar as we ask again of other people what we think they owe us, so we will be asked again at the Day of Judgment. And this opens up the question of, should we forgive without repentance? Or should we say, no, I'll only forgive you if you repent? And I don't think there is a right or wrong answer to that, because you can find biblical evidence both ways. But the issue is, how we judge, and the degree to which we ask again of other people, is how we will be judged. Now David says in Psalm 19, forgive me for my secret sins. Sins that he'd committed that he didn't even realise he'd done. And I pray that prayer, and I'm sure you do. And if we're going to come to the day of judgment with the uh, sort of expectation almost that God will forgive us for the things that we did that we didn't perceive were sinful. Well, we will be forgiven without specific repentance. And <clears throat> a lot of the people who sin against us, they don't get it. They, it's, oh, maybe somebody steals from us or robs us or something. I, I find that sort of thing far easier to forgive than abuse that is carried out against us by people who really know not what they do, who are maybe even kitted up that what they're doing is actually obedience to God. Now, okay, we can say, well, when you repent, I'll forgive you. The problem with that is, okay, it's not wrong in itself, but that's, if you take that attitude, that's how you're going to be judged. So, how we ask again of other people, how w what we require of them, is what will be required of us. So, for example, somebody owes us money. We lend them something, may not even be money. And we know that the Bible says we should not, as it were, demand the return of, of lent property or, or money. And uh, you, know, you can understand why. Because... As you ask again of people, as you hold people to account, you also will be held to account. So it's better, therefore, not to demand the return of what you owe me. And we know how Jesus points out in another parable the, the terrible error of the man who says to the, the fellow servant, pay me what you owe me. You owe me big time, now pay up. In our context in our lives today, in, in Europe or wherever we are in the 21st century, it seems to me that it's not so much about money. People owe us big time. All sorts of things. And I, I'm not talking about money. We have all been wronged in more ways than we probably realise. We may realise it unconsciously, subconsciously. But we have been deeply wronged. And at times we demand that again of somebody, at least in our own minds. I will not have anything to do with that person because they didn't get right with me over this, that or the other. Or I will not have anything to do with her because I know her father. Or I know her daughter. And I know what they did. And I, I know this, that, the other. Well, yeah, okay, you, you can take that attitude if you want. But 
insofar as we take that attitude, this is the sort of judgment that we will be given. And I for sure don't want to be dealt with by God like that. And I know you don't either. And so the, the way to live in this life is as if we ourselves are standing before the judge right now. And in essence, of course, judgment is going on right now. Now, your soul will be required, will be asked again of you. There's a kind of similar word, based on similar in terms of asking, in verse 48 of Luke 12 here, 48. He that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. To whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Again, the idea of men requiring of us, and I think the men in that context, there in 48, is again the angels. It's talking about... um, Again, the day of judgment. And men, people, uh, persons, will be requiring something of us. Again, there's a connection with how we uh, require of other people. We saw it in chapter 6, verse 30. And how in the last day, God, Jesus, through the angels, will require of us. Now he says there that to whom much is given, much will be required. And as I have said before, and I will say it again, that we in our generation have been given a huge amount. We are not, none of us I believe, one talent people. We've been given literacy, we've been given the Bible in our own native language, we've been given so much, so much. And a lot will be required of us. And we might prefer to be somebody who is not given very much, but the fact is, God chose to give us a lot and he's certainly given us a lot of grace and a lot of forgiveness and so more will be asked, required of us verse 20 then whose shall those things be which you have prepared or provided the man as it were realises too late at his deathbed how stupid he had been. Now, it's very similar in tone here to the whole of Ecclesiastes, that we're going to die, so what's the deal with materialism, with all that materially we have? And the point is that we can learn now, in this life, while we're alive and kicking, the lesson that that man learned too late on his deathbed. And this will be the tragedy of the rejected of the Day of Judgment, that they will perceive all this kind of stuff too late. That, ah yeah, I was totally maxed out on my apartment, on, on getting that new kitchen, on this, that or the other. And what a waste it was. But now is the time. Now is the time to get it and to realize that accumulating personal wealth is vanity. And it's not only vanity, but in our last breath, and we will all one day, Jesus doesn't come, breathe our last breath. In our last breath, in our final moment, the, the point is, well, who are you? Who are you? Not what have you got, because we brought nothing into this world and it's sure that we can take nothing out. And yet, you know, I see brothers and sisters giving their lives 
uh, I've made this mistake myself, I guess we all have, uh, giving their lives to trying to get ahead materially. Taking a second job. Taking a demanding job, very often, that demands your whole soul. That demands everything from you. Why? So that you can pay off that mortgage on that big house, on that nice apartment, so you can have nice things. I mean, come on, how crazy are we? Gathering all that stuff for ourselves and not being rich toward God. And, you know, let's not kid ourselves. Say, ah, well, I'm doing this so that I can serve other people. No. The wealth towards God, as I believe I said last Sunday, uh, is, for example, the, the homeless sister that I, we spoke about last Sunday, who has brought, what, over 20 people to Christ. She is wealthy. Wealthy. She doesn't need, absolutely doesn't need, uh, anything. Just talks to people. Give them a Bible basics. Talk to them about Jesus, the kingdom, baptism. And brings people towards God's kingdom. Now, that's wealthy. She's wealthy. Really wealthy. But she has nothing. Absolutely nothing. Really. Just a few clothes. Really, that's what she has. Nothing. But she's wealthy. You don't need wealth or material possessions to to be rich toward God or to, to gather people into his kingdom. So then, whose shall those things be which you have prepared or provided? And again, it's the same word in verse 47, if you go over there. That servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared or provided not himself, neither did according to his will, should be beaten with many stripes. There will be people who knew God's will, but did not prepare himself did not provide for himself now you see the the point that's being made the rich fool and he's a fool provided for himself material things the verse 47 the person who will be beaten and rejected at the last day is the person who did not prepare for himself you see The rich fool is all on about self. We circle those words in our Bible. Self, self, me, my soul, my goods, etc. Me, myself and I. But that man did not prepare himself. He prepared materially for himself. But spiritually he didn't prepare himself as a person. So again I say, personality is absolutely paramount. And in fact, Jesus seems to be saying that preparing ourselves, providing for ourselves, as in myself, my spiritual self, is actually opposed to, it's uh, an opposition to, it's at the other end of the scale to material wealth and, and prosperity. Verse 33. Sell what you have, give alms, make for yourselves purses or bags which don't become old, a treasure in the heavens, that fails not. The implication, I think, is that every good deed, every generosity, is never tinged by times passing. You go out there and you do a good deed for somebody, God remembers that, and that's like you put money in Heaven's Bank, that that is never ever going to disappear. 
you go out there and, and work a bit harder at your job uh, and uh, fiddle around on the internet to uh, try to, uh, I don't know, get, get a few more percent on your savings and spend hours worrying about it, etc., that, that will pass. All that will fade. In the spectre of eternity, that's nothing. It's not even a, a, a blip on the screen. But you go out there and do something for somebody. And I don't mean, you know, everything goes around money in this world. I don't mean giving, giving a guy some money. I mean giving someone of yourself. Talking to somebody. That is the sort of stuff that will last forever. And, you know, he, he says, he, Jesus assures us, that somehow God will provide. 27, look at the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. Yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God clothes the grass, how much more shall he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And again, you know, Jesus sets us the, the great standard, and yet he's very gracious. O ye of little faith. It's good when you read the Gospels to imagine how he said some of these things. And I get the feeling he said, O ye of little faith, in a very gentle way. He realised that this is really hard for us. He sets the high standard and then he says, well, yeah, I know. I know that it's hard for you. But in the end, we have never seen, David said, the seed of the righteous begging bread. We have never seen Ultimately, God's true children literally starving to death. Uh, I'd be interested to discuss this uh, afterwards, but from what I've seen, travelling around for uh, 25 years now, the, uh, the poorer world, mixing with uh, true believers, here, there and everywhere, in, in you know, very poor situations, somehow God provides food and clothing. I would be interested to know if anyone says, no, I know uh, a Christian who died... With, with absolutely died from hunger with no clothes. Uh, I'd be surprised. Because I, I have not heard of anything like that, I've not seen anything like that, and certainly here in our context, here in Latvia, this is also true. Everyone's dead scared, worried about financial crisis, and times are hard, no one denies that. But not one of us as God's children is starving, and none of us are walking out there in the snow with, with no clothes. And you and I know that. This is a test of our faith. And of course he's alluding to how in the wilderness God did provide them with food, manna, which they complained about, they got bored of it, and with clothing. You know, their, their shoes didn't wear out the whole journey. So God will provide the very basics. And I think that is what we should, uh, we should hold on to. And not try and build up our storehouses and our barns, which you could say is savings, banks, bank accounts, or, or whatever. If those things are part of our lives, featured of our lives, okay, I'm not saying they are sinful in themselves. The, the point is that this man was racing ahead in his mind, fantasizing when the harvest was not yet gathered, about pulling down his barns, building greater, and how he's going to turn all his uh, wonderful harvest into, into goods and store up those goods. He's going to eat, drink, and be merry for many years, so he thinks, on the basis of his, his one good harvest. So verse 23, in the RV, Jesus says, For the life is more than the food. The life. I, I love that. The life. There's only one life, really, and it's not that life of materialism. 
the life, the one life, is who you and I are today, right now. That is the life. And that is what's so, in the end, vital. That we are, in the end, going to have to present our lives back to God at the day of judgment, when the the angels will require this of us. And it's life, not what we have materially, it's personality, it's character, whichever word you want to use, soul, as the uh, language of the uh, first century has it, the essence of you, however you want to put it, that is what is important. But, oh, even if we knew the Day of Judgment was going to come next Sunday, so we got, well, a week to prepare ourselves. I mean, what will we do? I mean, you sort of can't do anything. You can't say, right, well, today I'm going to work on humility, tomorrow I'm going to work on faith, day after on generosity, or whatever it might be. Growth is a natural process. And all I can say is, that, you know, how can we focus upon our lives? How concretely? What, what's the practical issue from all this? Well, I can't really give you anything particularly specific, because as I say, even if we knew Jesus was coming back next week, and we got one week to prepare, well, actually, what would we do? I think we might use our time differently. We would manage our time differently. We would have a sense of intensity uh, about life. That is, uh, yes... That would be so. But you can't sort of bash yourself into spirituality. It's a natural process. I think we would spend more time in prayer. We would probably read God's word somewhat differently and take it far more personally than maybe we do today. We would be more sensitive to opportunities in life to show spirituality, um, to, to grow, as we know God would want us to. We would be more spiritually minded. You know, if Jesus is coming next week, well, you'd probably still go to work. Right? So, as you travel to work, however you travel to, to your work, what would you be thinking about? Right? And when issues came up, like, uh, well, on Tuesday... Something comes up and you've got to prepare something for Friday. And Friday is very, very important at work. Okay, well, yeah, right. (laughs) I'm going to have judgment on Sunday. Um, Okay, so you do that. You do it the best of your ability. You would certainly be sharing with other people that, you know what, well, (laughs) my time's limited because my Lord is coming back. And above all, I think if we really love the Lord, we would be excited. We would be excited thinking, well, if I'm ready or not, he loves me, and I'm getting ready to to be with him, and he loves me as I am. I mean, it's like the girl, this is the nearest analogy that I can think, uh, the girl is getting married next Sunday, and she thinks, well, I'm not so pretty, and I don't know, how do I do my hair, how do I do this, what am I going to wear, how should I do this, how should I act, how should I whatever... How should I walk down the aisle or whatever it might be? But in the end she thinks, yeah, well one thing I do know is that he loves me. And that's what she would keep on and on coming back to. And so that's how we might act if we knew Jesus was coming next Sunday. 
But the point is that we should live as if he is coming today. This is the challenge. This is what Jesus calls watching for his coming. Now, watching is not, is not studying prophecy to we'll see if we can map out uh, a likely uh, set of events that's going to happen, a sort of a chronology of the last days, <clears throat> and trying to interpret what's going on in this world politically uh, against Bible prophecy so that we can say, yep, so Jesus is uh, going to come back in my lifetime or soon, or this is going to happen or that's going to happen and then he'll be back. That is not, that is not watching. Jesus said, talking about his predictions, he said, I tell you this right now, so that when it happens, then you will believe. Then you will understand. So the whole point of predictive prophecy, although there is such a thing in the Bible, I guess, uh, is so that when it happens, particularly tribulation and difficult experiences, we will not be floundering and lost, but we will then, <clears throat> we will understand that, wow, this is all exactly what the Bible says. <clears throat> So, watching is not trying to figure out prophecy. Watching is the sort of things that we just spoke about when we said, what would it be like if we knew the next Sunday Jesus is coming back and that we've got to go to the Day of Judgment. Watching is being aware, is loving him and loving his appearing. And as I say, I'm not so sure that we should be thinking, well, he might come next Sunday. The point is, we are to live as if. He is coming today. Thank you.